Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to episode three of La Pré-Cour, a student-run American University of Paris International Affairs podcast. Our goal is to break down complex global issues in a digestible manner. Reminder, we're on Instagram. You can follow us at, at sign, A-P-R-E-S-C-O-U-R-S. And more importantly, we're on Twitter. You can follow us. Our handle is at A-P-R-E-S underscore C-O-U-R-S. Someone out there took our A-P-R-E-S, no underscore C-O-U-R-S. What? That was very sad to see. That How dare That's what they? happened. Well, I think more interestingly, when I was trying to create the Twitter account, <laughs> <laughs> I had Cour Après instead of what? Après Cour. So we currently have both of those Oh, we, bo- oh, we, we didn't delete But don't worry, I, dis- I disactivated oh, Cour okay. Après. Excellent, excellent, excellent. <laughs> In case a Cour Après podcast wants to emerge anytime soon <laughs> you may not translated to the after course <laughs> in English. now listeners if you guys know how we can reclaim that twitter handle a-p-r-e-s-c-o-u-r-s send us an email all right and we're working on a website right now and that's really exciting keyword Stuart. keyword working so let's yeah. let's not go looking for under it, construction folks. under construction <laughs> Stuart is working on that website right now, but as he said, it is under construction. Do not try to look it up, please. It may or may not be live. My cell may... phone number may or may not be on there. Yeah. <laughs> but you can text him if you want to. <laughs> Send him a message. See how he's doing. And also just want to say welcome back to Deanna. She's Thank back you. on the air. We got the whole gang here today. It's yeah. feeling pretty good. The trio's back together. This is good. This is good. Now, I just want to get right into this topic. So the Lebanon protest. Tens of thousands of protesters are on the streets in Lebanon demanding an end to government corruption. The current protest sparked after the Lebanese government proposed a now-defunct proposal to add a monthly $6 tax on WhatsApp usage. But the protesters' outrage is founded on a long-standing distrust and discontent towards the sitting government. Their anger accumulated over the years as the political elites failed to address basic basic needs for the population, including things like water and electricity. Now, a third of the population lives under the poverty line. Youth unemployment is at 37%, and now the, the country is dealing with its worst economic crisis in decades. This is far from a new issue for the people of Lebanon. But for more than a month now, the people of Lebanon have stood up and said, enough is enough, in the words of Bernie Sanders. <laughs> we have a great episode ahead of you today. Today, we are inviting Professor Ziad Majid, to help us unpack the Lebanon protest and understand what has happened, what is currently happening, and the implications moving forward. Now, I unfortunately was not there to be able to hear the yeah, be there for the interview, delay. but I heard it, and it's really, really good. I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. What? How was the energy in the room? I feel like it must have been just amazing to be in the presence of someone like yeah, him and learn was, so much about the protest. He was so genuinely easy to talk to, and he obviously had a wealth of knowledge, as Stuart will get to in just a minute, to talk about his background. But uh, truly, even I, as a Lebanese, learned so much from him and about my country. So, um, yeah, truly, what an honor it was to really? talk to him. Yeah, it, it really is. It's amazing to talk to someone with an intellect like that because you feel like you could keep asking questions all day and you yeah. could still have more questions. So, you know, <laughs> keep listening, yeah. you know, I mean, keep listening, keep looking out for articles from Ziad because, um, you know, he, he's got a lot of really interesting things to say right now. Um, but just a little bit about him uh, and his background. Um, So he's a professor at AUP, and he teaches history, international affairs, and conflict resolution. He's an author and a co-author of many books and studies on reforms, democratic transitions, elections, civil society, and citizenship in Lebanon, Syria, and the Arab world. 
Um, so a little bit about how he got to where he is now. Um, he has his PhD in political science from Sciences Po, uh, master's in Arabic literature from the American University of Beirut, and a bachelor's also from the American University of Beirut uh, in economics. Um, so he knows this topic inside and out, uh, needless to say. Um, and you know he, he's been working on uh, uh, he's been working. He worked in Lebanon for eight years for the Lebanese Red Cross. Um, he was also involved between 1995 and 2004 in several citizen campaigns in Lebanon. Um, so. Um, it's safe to say that we found someone Very well <laughs> ultimately qualified, qualified <laughs> to talk to, um, yeah. and um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm just really excited for our listeners to hear um, what he has to say. And also, uh, Sarah Musa was joined us. Do you, do you have? Yeah, our our fellow student Sarah Musa here at AUP. She's uh, doing her master's in international affairs, as a couple of us, Bile and I, are also getting our international affairs um, degrees right now. Um, she's a Lebanese student uh, studying in France, and um, she's also part of the Student Government Association. And um, obviously, being a Lebanese student living abroad, she brought not only that perspective, the young um, perspective from the from the revolution, but she also brought the very important uh, female perspective um, that we really needed to capture in this episode. So I was very proud and happy to have her as part of the conversation. She, she was definitely also very moving and um, had a lot to say. And also, I mean, let's just, let's just, I mean, she's just such a lovely person. <laughs> I was so just, awesome. I was excited that social she chair. agreed. She's the social chair for a yeah. reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you're listening, thank you for doing this. Thank yeah. you, Sarah. Yeah. You did a great thing for everyone. Because, I mean, it's not just me. There, everyone is very curious about what happened, what is currently happening mm-hmm. in Lebanon and sort of what are the historical precedents behind all this happening? What things are in place right now that led to such great unrest, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's just, it was just such an interesting interview yeah. to And hear. I think we did get to the bottom of it in this conversation um, as much as we can. A lot of questions, not just in the Lebanese revolution, but what's happening in Hong Kong, what's happening in Chile, and now um, Iran and Iraq as well. We got to the bottom of it as much as we can. There are still many unanswered questions, and the answers to those won't come out even in the next year or maybe in the next five, but answers will emerge at some point. But we were able to answer as many questions as we could in this brief conversation that we had with Sara and Professor Majid. Now, without further ado, here is our conversation with Professor Ziad Majid. Hello and welcome, Professor Ziad Majid and AUP student and student government leader, Sarah Musa, to our pod. It's really a pleasure to have both of you. Thank you so much for spending some time with us here today. Um, So we've prepared a number of topics that we'd like to discuss. Primarily, though, we really just want to get your firsthand perspective on what is going on in Lebanon right now, as well as the historical lead up to this moment in time and, and also, you know, what we can look forward to in the future. Um, So as the only non-Lebanese person here, I feel um, very privileged to be able to speak with you all about this Um, and to have such a great Lebanese presence here on AUP's campus, um, I think is really amazing. So let's dive right in. Diana, you're the true architect of this podcast. Um, Thank you very much, Stuart. Sure. (laughs) Um, So I'm very, very excited, obviously, that the episode 
for Lebanon is happening today, finally. Um, obviously, being a Lebanese student um, and being in, in France, especially watching all of the events happen, um, has been very moving. And um, so once again, I'd like to thank you, Professor Majid, for being here with us today, as well as Sara. Um, my first question was um, for Professor Majid, we understand that you were in Lebanon recently. Um, I haven't had the chance to go just yet um, in this uh, interesting time, and I, I think Sada's in the same boat because we're very busy doing uh, studious work right now. So um, I wanted to ask you, what was the energy like in Lebanon? What was it like being uh, on the ground in Beirut or other cities all over the country? Okay, well, thank you first for uh, inviting me and for this uh, program. Uh, yes, I was in Beirut for uh, eight days, uh, two weeks ago, uh, and it was uh, probably one of my best trips to the country, uh, and uh, lots of energy, as you said, in the streets. Uh, a new generation is everywhere. Uh, women are leading the demonstrations uh, and are playing a very important role. Uh, their slogans are not anymore about women's rights. They are real feminist uh, slogans. Mm -hmm. uh, there are graffitis on walls everywhere. The city center of Beirut uh, that have excluded uh, the lower middle class and the lower classes uh, for uh, more than 30 years now since its reconstruction is being occupied again by people uh, from different social classes, different backgrounds, and this is, in my opinion, something very new. Uh, the fact that the uprising is a decentralized one uh, against a very uh, corrupt government and a mediocre political class uh, makes it... Uh, even more important than any previous uprisings in the history of the country, because in all cities, in all places, we see the same energy, the same dynamics, and the same new generation uh, that is hoping to build uh, another country and uh, another state uh, and another society, of yes. course. Yes, I mean, speaking of that, being unassociated, unaffiliated, there's been, especially um, living out in the West, not being in Lebanon, um, there's been a question of whether it is true non-confessionalist movements out in the streets. Um, there's a bit of skepticism there. I mean, what did you see that kind of demonstrated that there were people were leaving their identities at home and coming out to the streets and being like, we are Lebanese and that's it? Mm. Well, uh, it's not the first moment where there are uh, such kind of uh, popular movements in which people are much more uh, identifying themselves as Lebanese than uh, as Christians or Muslims or Shia or Sunnah Maronites, etc. Uh, what is interesting this time and what, in my opinion, is different, and I'm not talking about everyone, of course, I'm talking about a large part of the demonstrators, especially the students, especially the young people, young men and women. Uh, I believe they're not even into that questioning about confessionalism. Uh, for them, the fact that this is being asked is by itself a confirmation of confessionalism. Uh, they're not even concerned about saying that we are not anymore into sectarian identities or uh, the whole uh, previous uh, folklore or reality when it comes to being Muslims and Christians together. Uh, for them, talking about it uh, is an insult to their intelligence and to their new political culture, uh, including what used to be said in 2005 uh, on March 14 when there was more than a million people in the streets and when there was a prayer or when uh, there were kind of promises uh, in which people were represented as Muslims and Christians together. This for them is, is history. Uh, now, does, does uh, the fact that a large part of the new generation is not anymore 
into these kind of sectarian identities mean that the country will overcome the sectarian system and confessionalism? In my opinion, no. This is not by itself uh, enough because there are lots of mechanisms uh, that need to be uh, reviewed, uh, the constitution, uh, many laws, the political culture, the mentality. And there are also uh, other people who might uh, be attached uh, until today to their sectarian uh, identity and there are also clientelistic networks uh, because sectarianism is not only an abstract concept uh, it is also uh, a network of institutions of uh, religious services uh, of uh, corrupt uh, distribution of the uh, revenues of the state so it's not an easy thing to deal with but there is definitely something fresh something new uh, and people are using the term laicite or uh, secularism and not only uh, how to uh, combat confessionalism uh, so they are beyond the question of political representation of sectarian identities into talking about sectarianism in the society uh, in the discrimination against women uh, in the uh, uh, social uh, sphere in general uh, and and this is new uh, we only had something similar maybe in the early 70s when the left was on the rise uh, but then after the war most of the debates uh, were about overcoming confessionalism in the political arena and not uh, within the society uh, when it comes to the m uh, laws of marriage, of divorce, of custody, when it comes to weakening the presence of the uh, religious institutions themselves and not the religious beliefs or, or devotion or faith of the individuals. Thank you. Thank you so much for that response. Um, and you mentioned that this, uh, you mentioned in your blog posts as well, which I've really enjoyed, um, that this revolution is being led by women and, and young women. And we have you here today, <laughs> Sarah, being the young female leader that you are. Um, I've seen a number of the uh, posts that you've put uh, online on various social media about being and the protests in Paris. And I was hoping you could just describe your personal feeling um, that that you um, have have had in participating in those protests. And then maybe also talk about kind of what the notion of an, the idea of this leaderless protest means to you at this point. Because as we know, there's no real uh, one figure who is leading this. Rather, it really is kind of a collective spirit, it seems, that's kind of brought, brought on these uh, events. Okay, well, first, thank you for having me again, and um, I'm really excited to be here. Um, in terms of participating in the protests, I don't know if you'd know, but here they've been organizing, uh, a small group uh, have been organizing um, a weekly Sunday protest uh, in, like, in parallel with Lebanon, and... It has been successful. I have unfortunately only been able to participate in once. Um, and it has been a very unique experience seeing thousands of Lebanese, of the Lebanese di diaspora in Paris being all um, grouped into one place and chanting the same uh, messages of unity. Uh, it's something I never thought I would truly witness um, in my 20s so it, it was very it was beautiful um but i haven't been able to participate on the ground in lebanon unfortunately and that's i feel like most people that are abroad um feel this kind of fomo if, if you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> i think uh, speaking to people who Fear are of missing out exactly <laughs> <laughs> that's for our non 
yeah young audience um <laughs> so i i've spoken to a, a lot of um, lebanese people that are here in paris or that are in the states and they're all expressing the same uh sentiment of wanting to be there they're not afraid they're not like oh what's happening i'm afraid for my parents i'm afraid i don't want to go there because i'm afraid something bad is going to happen they're not worried about security i think most of us are just just really want to be there with the rest of the population and especially being young or the younger generation the youth i think those are the ones because we feel like this is our revolution mm-hmm. um i don't know about the rest of i can't i can only speak for myself but i think this is like going off on social media and seeing what everyone is talking about i feel like everyone shares the same feeling that um the older generation, our parents' generations, they had their time. And where we are now is kind of partially their fault or their making. Um, especially me, for, for so for the last elections, I wasn't able to vote. So the people that are in power right now, I didn't make that call. And if I could, I wouldn't have made the call that my parents made. Um, so I feel like the youth is really just taking control of this revolution and so this uh coming back to your question about the Mm -hmm. leader of this revolution honestly for me the leader in this revolution are two categories of people and it's not one person it's women and Mm -hmm. young people that's it absolutely and and a follow-up question um so in preparing for this interview i've i've learned about various personal status laws uh, which are in place, um, which I mean, and please correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, Lebanese women, um, if they're married to a foreign-born man, uh, yeah. their children then would not get citizenship, whereas uh, a Lebanese man, mm-hmm. if they were married to a foreign-born or a non-Lebanese person, they would receive citizenship. Exactly. So, um, and, and also, um, this implication of the autonomous religious courts that administer these laws um, it makes it more difficult for women than men to terminate unhappy or abusive marriages. Um, and so, I don't know, it, could, could you maybe just solidify my knowledge in that department? I mean, you, you've uh, grown up with this. So mm-hmm. ha- has that kind of led to what you're feeling now? Of, of course, of course. Um, first, I consider myself a feminist. And being a feminist in the Middle East is very, very important because you're constantly being... Uh, contested you're constantly being opposed because all the laws are against you um i i feel like everyone right now uh during the revolution is kind of putting an emphasis on all those inequalities all those gender inequalities um what you said about the um, uh, nationality law is very true it's very correct and this is something i worry about constantly not necessarily because i want to get married tomorrow but um (laughs) seeing that i'm in paris and i might end up with a person not of the same national nationality as me i worry about um not being able to give my children my a part of myself a part of my identity and i feel that is very unfair and um that's something to i think one of the most important things to change in the in the near future if the revolution ever leads to something hopefully yeah and i mean like like you said also professor Majid, it's the women that are really driving um this force behind the movement and 
that is one of the most forwardly heard requests on the streets. And from what I've seen, obviously, on TV and social media is that women want the right to pass on their identity to their children. Um, and I, this has just been one of the requests that we've been hearing far and wide. Um, I mean, I've also heard about, uh, and this was more recent, the general amnesty laws um, that are being requested out on the streets. So uh, free in certain individuals from certain crimes and set them free. Um, you know, so those types of requests. I mean, what else have you heard or what can you say about either the nationality law, nationality law or the general amnesty law that's being requested right now? Yeah. Now, for the uh, nationality law, uh, there are many Arab countries that already uh, accepted to modify their uh, their legislations, and women can uh, pass the nationality to their children and even to their husbands if the husband live in uh, lives in the country: Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, and there are other discussions taking place in uh, other countries. Lebanon is way behind, uh, so. First, uh, this is a kind of non-recognition of the citizenship of yes. the Lebanese woman when she cannot give the nationality to her husband and to the children. Uh, in some cases, they talk about the confessional balances, uh, the fact that some Lebanese are married to Palestinian or to Syrian who happen to be Muslim Sunni, so this will create some imbalances in the uh, uh, confessional equation in the country. In some cases, it is much more to be uh, understood under the patriarchal structure uh, that is very strong in Lebanon and in other places, uh, around Lebanon, I mean, and probably all, all over the world. Uh, and it is related as well to the fact that in the Lebanese parliament and in the Lebanese government, there are very few women. Mm -hmm. And most of the women who are there are the widow of or the daughter of or the wife of. Uh, so there are lots of uh, uh, difficulties for women to impose themselves within the pol political uh, representation mainly also because most of the politicians are either uh, former warlords mm -hmm. uh, or uh, businessmen. Uh, and in those two circles as well, women are not as present as they are in many other uh, sectors and, and circles in the society. So what is happening today is, is yes, this is becoming one of the most important questions. Uh, and uh, we can add to it the fact that in Lebanon we have 15 different laws when it comes to the uh, personal status. There are 15. Uh, and uh, this will affect the age of marriage. It will affect the age of custody. And in all 15 laws, there are discriminations against women, whether under the Christian courts or the Muslim courts. So it is an extremely important uh, today uh, demand by the street and by the feminist participation, uh, supported by lots of groups who in the past did not see the importance of that. They considered that there are more important questions. They are realizing now how urgent uh, this issue is, exactly as the issue of uh, uh, considering that the age of 18 is the age of voting. While in Lebanon, we still have the age of 21. Uh, 21 years, uh, it means that uh, the young uh, man and woman uh, are trying to find a job so they can be more uh, manipulated or uh, a chantage can be uh, imposed on them by the groups uh, within their community, political ones, to give them a job, to offer them something. Uh, while those who are under 21, 18 to 21, uh, are uh, freer, uh, they are into their universities, they do not need the politician and the confessional leader to offer them anything. Uh, so the political class has always rejected the demand to modify the electoral law so that the people who have 
who are under 20, uh, 21 can vote. And there are maybe 50% of the demonstrators uh, in the streets today. That's why they are realizing how important it is to modify the electoral law. Otherwise, the same political class could find ways to renew to itself even through elections, mm -hmm. by gerrymandering the electoral law, by yeah. controlling the media, by having the financial uh, capacities, and by excluding the young people from uh, 18 to 21. Uh, so these are also questions uh, that are uh, uh, always evoked in the street. Now, for the amnesty law, there are different types of amnesty laws. You know, after the end of the Lebanese civil war, there was an amnesty law uh, that did not allow for any truth and reconciliation process like in South Africa that did not open the uh, the issue of massacres and war crimes uh, that did not create any punishment mechanism and the only punished person was punished not for his uh, war crimes and he probably committed war crimes like all other warlords he was punished for political reasons related to the post-war so for many people the question of amnesty in Lebanon was never dealt with in a uh, politically and ethically and socially correct way uh, as if what happened was an earthquake and no one is responsible mm -hmm. and they didn't want to allow the society to uh, create a collective memory in which there are accountabilities, there are questions, uh, there are places where we might uh, go and meet with the parents of those who disappeared and never uh, reappeared after the end of the war. So there are lots of problems related to this whole issue. Now, the parliament uh, wanted to, to uh, organize a session a few days ago to uh, issue uh, an amnesty law that will mainly liberate from prisons people who are close to the different political forces in power uh, by saying that, okay, now it's a new moment, let's uh, liberate all of them. Also, they wanted to uh, discuss uh, laws related to financial crimes and to the uh, uh, issues related to, uh, uh, in Lebanon, there are uh, bank secrecy laws, uh, how to also, through keeping them find a solution for uh, the banks and so th it was an, an ambiguous agenda and no one trusted the the parliament and that's why demonstrators did not allow the parliamentarians to reach the parliament and to have uh, that that session what they are calling for in terms of amnesty in some places uh, there are thousands of lebanese who are in jails waiting for their trial Okay. So even if they will have a judge who will decide that they should get five years or ten years, they have already spent more than five years or ten years in jail waiting for the legal procedure to take place. So these are like people from Tripoli. There are um, a few hundreds uh, like them. They were calling for a release, for an amnesty for these people because anyway, they did spend the year that any, the, 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 I mean, the, the time that they any judge could have. Exactly. Yeah. So these kind of amnesties are, but not when it comes to financial crimes, when it, not when it comes to any other uh, issue. And uh, one important, and I will finish here, uh, one important uh, request is uh, to oblige the banks not to allow the multi-billionaires or the billionaires or the millionaires to transfer their money outside the country because there are lots of rumors and it seems some of them are confirmed about around a billion dollar uh, that was transferred from Lebanon during uh, the, the last month to banks outside probably by people who have connections in the banks mm -hmm. while all those who have deposits who have some money cannot withdraw from the bank um, but 
400 or 500 dollars a week sometimes there are uh, difficulties and and this is of course creating panic fears there are lots of problems not everyone in lebanon uses the credit cards you need always to have cash to pay people who might come and work at your place to pay uh, anything i mean uh, it's not always uh, the credit card that is possible so all of this uh, is being uh, as well dealt with in many of the slogans and the discussions in the public places absolutely and and you mentioned the economic situation which um i was really hoping to talk to you about so i'm glad you gave me the perfect opportunity um so a, a fact that i found is, is lebanon has one of the world's highest debt to gdp ratios sitting at around 150 percent um and um there's various things that are occurring um there's a great deal of income inequality um, there's almost a parallel to what's going on in the United States where the top 0.1% of about 3,000 people of Lebanese people have as much wealth as the bottom 50%, which is very similar to what's going on in the U.S. So that's one factor at play. But then the other factor at play, which you're discussing, is the currency. Um, and I was just hoping, could, could you try to explain, <laughs> um, and maybe, Sarah, you can speak to this as well, um, how you use American dollars and the Lebanese currency at the same time. Um, you know, one, one quote from a New York Times article that I found is from, a, from Dan Ozzi, who's a former bank, a Lebanese bank executive, and he says, um, it's almost surreal what is happening, a virtual problem, a theoretical problem that is spilled out into the real world. Um, as in um, the foreign investment, which was previously being attracted um, was being given out in a way that almost um, exemplified a Ponzi scheme of sorts. Um, and um, I don't know, could, could, could you go at, obviously this is a complicated question. It is a very complicated um, question. But, um, you know, could, yeah. could you speak to it? Just like the, the state of us, like in Lebanon, using dollars mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. euros at the same time. Right, and the, right. Yeah. Okay, right. Um, I think it's... It's very inter inter it was very interchangeable so basically you could go anywhere and pay with dollars or go anywhere with and pay with Lebanese pounds and it wouldn't make a difference except for certain banks where if your account was in Lebanese pounds and you could only deposit in Lebanese pounds or stuff like that or like procedures and in, in, in like um, public institutions you only have you can only pay in Lebanese pounds but usually it was very very much like oh a dollar is a thousand five hundred Lebanese pounds or a thousand five hundred fifteen uh, in the bank so it was it was normal it was okay to use either or but now uh, seeing as there has been like talks of inflation and a decrease in the amount of um, the actual well, I don't know what you call it when the value. exactly so the value of the lira will be like it will, it will be more worth more than it was before so you'd actually lose money if you're so say you're a professor at, an, at a Lebanese university you're paid in Lebanese pounds mm -hmm. and then if you want to pay if you want to pay outside or um, transfer your money outside you will actually be losing money because mm -hmm. you get paid in Lebanese pounds but if you're paying in Lebanon in Lebanese pounds it doesn't really make a difference. Adding to this as well, I, I mean, obviously I want you to add to that, to Sada's um, very relevant point, but also how did Lebanon reach such a level of debt? Mm. How did this happen when, it, when we all know, as Lebanese especially, that there is a lot of money um, circul circulating in the country? Mm. 
Well, yeah, uh, what Sarah said is, uh, is, is true in the sense that uh, the economy was dollarized. We can always use the dollar or the Lebanese lira, except in public administrations and except when it comes to the salaries of the employees in the public administration. But uh, it's a long history, in fact, uh, the one that brought us uh, here. Uh, it started with the end of the Civil War. Even in the Civil War, uh, in 75, when the war started, one USD was equal to 2.8, 2.9 Lebanese lira. Uh, then during the war, it went to 27. Uh, in the after the Israeli invasion of 82, it went for, first to four, five, six, then to 27, then to 40. And then by the end of the civil war, it was close to 3,000 Lebanese lira. Now, all salaries, of course, did not readjust as fast as that uh, uh, terrible uh, devaluation of the Lebanese lira or the Lebanese pound uh, happened. After the war, uh, the prime minister who came, Hariri, uh, for the reconstruction, uh, had uh, two priorities. The first one is to uh, stabilize the Lebanese pound at 1,500 uh, for one dollar. And that meant uh, always buying uh, Lebanese liras, uh, trying always to have the central bank uh, present in the market, not to allow the free market to determine the Lebanese lira's value, uh, and to have very high interest rates for deposits in Lebanese lira. Because before that, people prefer to put deposits in dollars. Uh, otherwise, they fear that their money will be, uh, will, will, be, will be lost with the change. So the central bank issued uh, reserves, or I don't know how to call them, the federal, like the coupon or the, 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 like the bonds, uh, with very high interest rates. And mainly the commercial banks deposited at the central bank lots of money in Lebanese lira and got huge amount of interest rates over the years. Uh, that was one priority for Hariri, was this question of stabilizing the lira. It had its positive impact on the purchasing power of the Lebanese, but at the same time, it created imbalances and uh, it allowed some people to have more and more money and the banks to accumulate billions of dollars uh, on, 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 the, on, the, on the one hand. And it did not always affect uh, the creation of jobs and investments uh, because people prefer to put money in the banks rather than investing and creating businesses, jobs, etc. The second priority of Hariri was the uh, reconstruction of the country very, very fast, thinking that we were in 91-92 with the peace process that the Americans initiated in the region between Arabs and Israel, that peace will be reached within a few years, so Lebanon should be ready uh, to benefit from uh, its implications. Except that the peace never happened, and uh, the situation is even worse uh, today uh, with the Israeli occupation and with the Trump administration's support of the uh, uh, occupation and the violation of international law uh, in West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem. Uh, so that did not happen. And on the other hand, with time, accumulating debts for the reconstruction led to more and more interest on the debts that take today around 50% of the Lebanese budget, uh, while the other 50% is to pay salaries and to, to all kinds of economies and services, mm -hmm. knowing as well that corruption and clientelism over the, the last uh, decades put lots of people in administration with no uh, real efficiency, uh, and at the same time, expelling them now would create social problems. So uh, the whole political class, from Hariri, to Birri, who has been also in power since that time, uh, to Hezbollah, to Jumblat, to the Lebanese forces, uh, all of them with no uh, exception, to 
uh, Aoun and his uh, movement since 2005, so for the last uh, 14 years now, they were all partners in the same policy. Their blocs voted for the same policies, even if in the media they might go and criticize, etc. But if you follow their uh, coalitions, uh, with few exceptions, they have always contributed to the same policy that led today to what you said, 150% uh, is debt. Most of it, however, is internal. Uh, and uh, with the banks being now uh, a real decider in, in uh, politics and economics in Lebanon, uh, in a part of the society uh, impoverished, uh, with lots of corruption as well, uh, we talk about the 1%, but if you take uh, the poorest city in the country, uh, Tripoli in the north, uh, it is the city of uh, two or three billionaires among the uh, most important, uh, I mean, wealth uh, and, and money in the country. And it has uh, more than a third of its population uh, living in, uh, in misery sometimes, not only in poverty. So uh, it's uh, full of contradictions, full of corruption. And what provokes people is that corruption became arrogant. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm corrupt. And I don't care. <laughs> do whatever yes. you want to do. Yes. Why? Because the, yeah. the judiciary is not it. independent. Yeah. Uh, judges are appointed by politicians in most yeah. cases. Uh, and uh, they, they also have their calculations. They want to be promoted. So they don't have their independence to be able to follow on corruption issues. There are scandals regularly. Lebanon witnessed uh, fires uh, recently. And the year before, supposedly, they bought the Canadair to deal with the fires, except that it appeared they, they do not function. Mm -hmm. So they asked Cyprus uh, for help. Uh, they, uh, uh, the electricity, we still suffer from electricity uh, problems and billions of dollars were spent uh, on that sector. Uh, nothing happened. Uh, the garbage crisis, until today there are no solution. They just pollute the sea and uh, the, the land and uh, uh, the ecological question, the environmental question is a disaster. Uh, the health of the Lebanese is bad, and there are recently statistics showing that uh, cancer is very high in Lebanon compared to many other countries around. So on all level, mm -hmm. the political class, with no exception, showed incapacity of managing the country. And there is a huge uh, gap, décalage, between uh, this vibrant society with uh, potential and with young, brilliant uh, women and men, and an old, corrupt and mediocre political class that doesn't want to abandon, in fact, power, because power is privileges, money, uh, and it's almost absolute power since no one can, uh, so far at least, uh, hold them accountable for their financial and environmental crimes. Right, absolutely. And I mean, it makes sense from our perspective and, um, you know, just to see like an overhaul, because at some, at some point, um, one or all of Lebanese have either lived in Lebanon or been to Beirut and experienced some of this corruption firsthand. Um, my question is that, you know, as we've seen these political uprisings that are happening right now in Beirut um, are very well organized. Um, recently, there were camps, however, that were destroyed by um, strong so-called militia groups. Um, in, in Beirut, and that kind of made some headlines. But as we know, um, the militia question and the arms question in Lebanon is very difficult. It's a very peculiar uh, question because, um, yes, they are militias, and yes, they are armed and, and dangerous. However, 
Um, many people, hundreds of thousands maybe, um, rely on some of these militias for their own livelihood. Um, so how should the Lebanese, especially those that are in the streets right now, in danger of being attacked by certain groups, how should they deal with that imminent danger? Um, I just want to say a couple of things to address that. First, I saw a video of one of the talk shows in Lebanon where there was this woman who was, um, so the talk show host was telling her, he's a famous talk show host in Lebanon, and he was telling her, like, how do you still support this person, this Mm -hmm. political leader? How, like, don't you see what's going on? You see he's corrupt. And he said, how can I not support him? I want to eat. I want to feed my children, I want to feed myself. And this is something that we've been, even if we don't see it, and we've only just begun to see it, we know of it. So we know that a lot of young or even like married people um, from certain areas in Lebanon uh, depend on these um, militias and specifically on the political leaders that lead these militias to give them money, to... Um, provide them with resources, give them jobs, exactly. And that is even um, outside of Lebanon. So in Africa and other countries, there are like connections that you, they wouldn't have these opportunities that they have now if they weren't um, supportive of these factions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but uh, uh, also just to to give this uh, context, uh, after the war, after the end of the war, all militias in Lebanon uh, were dissolved, except one, uh, that is Hezbollah. Uh, and the pretext was that as long as Israel continues to occupy Lebanese territories in the south, Hezbollah does have the right to preserve its weapon because it was leading a liberation war against the Israeli army. Israel left Lebanon following a long history of resistance in 2000. So the question became, uh, after 2000, whether this party has the right to preserve its weapon or not. And the Lebanese got divided around it. So a part of the Lebanese said that now that Israel left, this party should also dissolve its militia and become uh, a political party like the others. Uh, Some others said no, and the party itself, of course, said that as long as Israel remains a threat, we have to keep our weapon. And the Lebanese army historically uh, was not a strong army. So until we build a new army, uh, this is a guarantee Uh, that we can retaliate to any Israeli aggression. That was the official discourse of that specific party and its allies. And since 2000 until today, this question has been uh, at the center of the Lebanese political debates. Now, most of the political class, as I said, they agree on on budget questions, on economic issues, on clientelism, on corruption. But when it comes to the weapon of Hezbollah, they do, in fact, divide over it. Uh, And because this weapon has also been used in the war in Syria, Mm -hmm. and Syria, the Syrian regime and its Syrian army, has occupied Lebanon as well uh, for 29 years. And now uh, in Syria, uh, through the conflict there that followed the revolution, Hezbollah has participated in the war and sent thousands of Lebanese to fight to protect the uh, criminal regime of uh, Assad. Uh, The issue became even more problematic in Lebanon. But for the time being, in the streets, in these demonstrations, the majority of the people involved prefer not to address this specific question now. First, because they cannot master it. It's a regional question. The weapon of Hezbollah is directed by Iran, uh, and it's difficult in the street in Beirut or in Tripoli or in Jaladib or in Saida or in Nabatiyyeh to uh, 
oblige Iran to modify its regional approach. <laughs> so they are aware of that. It does not mean that they approve it, but they consider this is not the priority now. We will address it later in uh, uh, discussions with Hezbollah, because also no one is crazy to call for a civil war in Lebanon in order to disarm a party that anyway can win any civil war since yes. it doesn't have uh, people in front of it uh, who have militias and military infrastructure. So the question is not today uh, a priority, even if it's there, and there will be divisions uh, when it comes to dealing with it because uh, it has been uh, instrumentalized for, for decades now, so it will take time to deal with it uh, rationally. Uh, and because also due to the confessional system, we might return once again to this confessional equation, yeah. Hezbollah belongs to the Shia community uh, and it has a support among a large part of that community. So it's a very delicate uh, question related to regional and to local uh, equations. Uh, now for the violence against uh, the demonstrators and the camps that they have established in uh, downtown Beirut where they organize each evening a uh, kind of an agora. In fact, they organize debates on women questions, on the economy, on the rule of law, on secularism, uh, on uh, any, any question you want to uh, evoke. There are people who are ready to discuss it and uh, they want to talk about it. Uh, so uh, they were attacked by uh, thugs and by young men. Uh, some of them uh, maybe believe that uh, the whole thing is a conspiracy against them right. and their leaders. And some others are I mean, manipulated, and uh, or they just like, they enjoy coming and beating <laughs> and then leaving. <laughs> uh, so this is happening, but it is not what uh, is scaring people. People can deal with us. Uh, they they uh, wait uh, for a day and then they return and they rebuild the same time. It happened while I was there. Right. Uh, in the afternoon, th they came in the morning, destroyed a large part of the tents and even burned some of them. Uh, in the evening, already new tents were being put in place and we did uh, organize a session. And uh, so, so this is not the big problem. What, what might become more and more uh, frightening is... Uh, uh, some, let's say, um, threats that might be serious in terms of the security, in terms of telling the, the demonstrators that you will be responsible of any det deterioration in the security situation. Uh, there are now more and more uh, rumors uh, that some uh, press, some uh, newspaper close to the uh, uh, people in, in power, uh, to, to some sources in the parliament and the government, are saying that Daesh or the Islamic State yes. Uh, the defeated Islamic State, they do have now cells in Lebanon as if they are telling the people in the streets, ah, if something happened, it will be Daesh, it's not us. Right, and this is a technique right. that many Arab regimes uh, used before. Uh, the Syrian regime did it, the Egyptian regime does it today. Yes. Many regimes do it in order to frighten people and say, ah, it's international terrorism that will uh, target you. So this is what people are trying now to understand what kind of messages are being sent. Uh, but so far, uh, violence is very limited. And to, to go back to women, uh, whenever, whenever there are tensions between demonstrators and, and police uh, officers or police forces, young women and sometimes yeah. less young women or uh, uh, older women are immediately in between. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, in, 
imposing themselves as a kind of of a barrier yeah. so that between the the youth and and the yeah. uh, officers things cannot it's escalate. really amazing i have been seeing a lot of like um women's shields exactly. um, in front of young men Absolutely. that are preventing a lot of these mass arrests from happening it's remarkable Absolutely. um and yeah of course of course it's amazing to see as a lebanese and then one last question before i hand it off to Stuart to ask the final question um, we saw recently the recent election of Milham Khalaf um, as the independent head of the Lebanese Bar Association. So that was the first mark of hope for this particular revolution. And it was obviously, um, you know, an election and sure. one of the wor- uh, the first to happen um, since the protests emerged. So, I mean, is there hope? Is there is this the direction Lebanon is heading toward? Um, can we believe and invest ourselves in that idea? I mean, I want you both to answer this sure. question. Um, I think it was coming from my personal uh, view. When I saw the video of um, the elections and the results, I it was there was like a sense of pride and hope um, because they. I don't know if you saw the video. Of course, you saw the video. Mm-hmm. The people there were chanting, and those are lawyers. Yes. They were chanting "Thoda, Thoda," like revolution, revolution in. Uh, that place where I think it was the justice palace, right? Yes. So it's like it just it, it it was a message of hope. Um, the fact that he won is in itself amazing because I also after he won, I was curious to kind of research who this person was and see all the amazing initiatives that he's been making. Like he went up to and his team, he went up to kind of recycle all the pamphlets that were used um, to to um, kind of uh, for the campaigns of his. Um, opponents which was amazing um but also you and going back to the frightening thing how people yeah how the power is using uh little things to frighten the masses and the protesters uh after that election i saw someone on facebook kind of share a bogus post uh how this person uh Khalaf is associated with uh And how he got a phone call from someone to congratulate him and he did not respond because of whatever. A bias. And this is something I think is to be addressed because Mm -hmm. um, ever since the revolution started, we've been getting messages and some are real and some are just rumors and you don't know what to believe. And I think information and how it's being relayed is very important because you don't know what to believe. Mm -hmm. Some things you see and you're like, oh, that's never going to happen. And it's actually, it it does happen. And it's kind of frightening to, um, because you don't know what to, what to believe. Believe, Um, uh, some sources I think are reliable, but then some people that are um, maybe less educated, uh, more susceptible, will believe whatever you tell them, yeah. and that it's could be the whole fake news yeah. phenomenon. Yeah, but it's uh, the whole fake news phenomenon, and I fully agree. Except that we uh, uh, we know what to believe and what uh, because if we say we don't know what to believe, I mean we we might be trapped by the whole question of, of fake news. There are lots of reliable sources in Lebanon and elsewhere, and we know that we can uh, talk to people directly. Uh, Malham Khalaf uh, is a very good and old friend. We worked together at the Lebanese Red Cross during the last years of the civil war, and then with Offrejois, which was an organization uh, that used to bring people from all over the regions of the country during the civil war uh, in order to, to break the, the borders between the Lebanese. And then uh, after the war, he was involved in many uh, campaigns, citizen campaigns. Uh, he started with a group of lawyers at the beginning of the revolution in October 17, 2019, a group of lawyers, and they had a tent 
close to the Martyr Square, uh, where they just put their numbers so that if you are arrested during the demonstration or if there is any problem, you call them and they will volunteer to defend you in the court. Uh, plus now most demonstrators, when they go to uh, the hotspots or places where there might be some tension with the police uh, and the army, uh, they write that phone number on their hand and they are asked to scream their names when they are arrested so that someone will follow up and will call the number uh, that they have on the... So Milham was uh, also involved in this. And just after he was elected, he went to uh, one security headquarter where uh, nine uh, demonstrators were arrested and uh, explained to the officers that this is over now. Each person who's arrested has the right to have a lawyer and we want to see them and we want to make sure that if there are no charges, they should be released uh, immediately or maximum in a few hours when you finish your investigation. This didn't used to happen in Lebanon because you might spend two, three days before even someone listened to you or know why, why you're there. Uh, and the return, even if it's still symbolic, but this gradual return of a notion uh, of a lawyer who defends people and who will uh, make sure that the Constitution and human rights uh, uh, charters are respected is something very important uh, when it comes to uh, rebuilding uh, trust in, in the Lebanese uh, state itself. So I think this is, uh, yes, this is an important question. As for Barry calling him, Barry is a lawyer. So <laughs> he's supposed to call him to congratulate him because he became his, uh, his representative, so even if I'm not sure he was happy with his election. <laughs> Right. Berry is the speaker of the parliament uh, for <laughs> the non-Lebanese. Thank, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for that. And um, for a, a, a final question, and thank you again, both both of you. Um, a final question. I want to come back to the AUP community. Your colleague and our professor, Philip Golub, <laughs> he has submitted a question. Well, I asked him to submit a question. <laughs> and he submitted a question. No force was used. Uh, no force was used. Um, one of the themes that we discuss in our class. Um, this this idea of a social democratic framework. Um, so I was hoping just to get an answer or, or to see what, you know, what uh, type of social democratic framework do you think would work in this region um, and a nation where there are so many different religious and ethnic factions? <laughs> you can write a paper Tough about question. it. And I, exactly. paper later. <laughs> I think it's very difficult to let go of the system we have right now. Um, it it might happen, but I don't I don't know what Professor Majid thinks of this. But <laughs> I think it's very very difficult. I think that's what the people want right now um, is to have a more uh, secular, uh, non-confessional uh, system where uh, democratic values are actually upheld. And I don't I actually I don't know what yeah. to say about this. I mean, it's, I can add to yeah. that. Is that like you, your identity is so linked to exactly yeah what faction you are mm -hmm. so they've made it i mean they've it's been this way throughout the years i don't know how how possible it would be to kind of change it within a few you know days and i've recently been talking to someone outside of um a up a lebanese person who is very well connected in france um and his views on the revolution were kind of not very similar to mine so it was, it was interesting discussing this with him um and he said the people are demanding things that are not very um that you can't get right away so the the demands of the people have to be more focused more um not not general and not uh they can't expect results right away and i think that's in terms of the system we have right now 
it it kind of makes sense because we can't just flip the the system um from one day to the other and be like yeah now we have yeah i agree with uh, sarah uh, about the time uh, factor and the fact that uh, it will take lots of time uh, if ever we will succeed in building a new model and a new system but to return directly to the question well well first we we are not in the middle east only ethnic and religious groups we're also political parties and social classes and uh, different cultures uh, and uh, personally i do not approve the culturalistic uh, approach considering that uh, there are cultural uh, parameters in the middle east and that uh, this is the way uh, the middle east is being determined uh, based on religious ethnic and other kind of uh, uh, groups that are uh, determined or uh, a priori with a priori kind of, of settings. I think everything's evolved economically and socially and politically. We have been through different processes and we have been uh, uh, through uh, colonial and post-colonial and uh, through different uh, national experiences that failed because of uh, corruption, because of conflicts, uh, because of frontier economies, uh, because of uh, cultural sometimes characteristics, because if we, we don't want them to explain everything, but we cannot exclude them neither. Mm-hmm. So there are a series of, uh, of phenomena in the region, and uh, also because of the military who uh, seized power following the coup uh, in different places, and those coups can be explained uh, either by the Cold War or by the Arab-Israeli conflict, or by the fact that social mobility was very slow in those countries due to the aristocracy and to the old form of bourgeoisie that were in place and did not allow for social mobility. So for many people used the army as a kind of a social mobile uh, vehicle, uh, allowing them later to seize power. Mm-hmm. And when they seize power, they imposed dictatorship. And with dictatorship, you have series of, of uh, illness and uh, uh, everything b- becomes very difficult to, to modify. Uh, and then violence will appear, and with violence, of course, things are worse. What we can expect today, especially with with this long process of revolutions uh, in Syria, in Bahrain, in Yemen, uh, in most cases, unfortunately, scenarios went into conflicts and into disasters, but uh, still, uh, there are relative successes in Tunisia. Uh, There are also uh, changes in the sets of minds in many of the societies. Uh, There are things that are... Uh, irreversible uh, when it comes to the place and the voices of women, uh, when it comes to the will of changing things, to the walls of fear uh, that were broken. And I'm not sure even with violence that the regimes were capable of rebuilding them. The proof, look at social media, the proof whenever they can be uh, away from the the bullets and uh, from torture, they go back to the streets. And then the second wave, Sudan, That was also a relative success a few months ago. Algeria, the mobilization is now in its 40th weeks and uh, it did not uh, uh, succeed so far in modifying lots of things. But at the same time, people occupying the streets, returning to the public sphere, uh, calling on uh, their rights uh, and refusing any compromise when it comes to their basic rights. This is something very new and it, it cannot be, I mean, uh, deleted like this or erased by the regimes the way they want. Uh, Iraq, after all the disasters and wars that Iraq went through, uh, it's now for the second month that the youth of Iraq are also like in Lebanon, in the streets, chanting for their rights, calling against corruption, remarkable. And still they are peaceful in their, uh, even if they are killed by snipers. Mm -hmm. Iran today, 
is boiling, is uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of people also in the street, and of course Lebanon. So I think we are, we, we are into a revolutionary process. It will take time. Success is not guaranteed anyway, uh, but people are trying, and they are responding uh, to uh, all observers uh, who don't know enough the region, uh, in the media, especially in the West, to say that things cannot only be explained based on the Sunni-Shia question, yeah. nor on the geostrategic question. In Lebanon, Saudi Arabia and Iran are in the same boat against the, uh, the, the revolution, even if there are lots of contradictions between them. But in the government, you have Hariri and you have Hezbollah. And they were defending each other for a long time before now the, their alliance collapsed. They didn't want Hariri to, to resign. Leave. Exactly. <laughs> in Iraq, the majority of the demonstrators in Iraq today are Shia Iraqis in Basra, in Najaf, in many neighborhoods in Baghdad. And they are demonstrating against the politicians that Iran imposed uh, on Iraq, the Shia Iran imposed on Iraq following the U.S. invasion. Uh, in Egypt and in Tunisia and in uh, Algeria, you don't have Sunni and Shia and uh, Christian and Muslim. So there are societies that are showing there are social classes, there are ideas, they are uh, with the aspirations to live like any individual on this planet. They want to walk with dignity. They don't want to be arrested if they write an article. They don't want to be arrested uh, if they wear the way they want. They want to be uh, they don't want to be uh, stolen by, by elites in power. So uh, I think this is a process. And as I said, success is not guaranteed, but I'm sure something will change. Uh, and at least that change will become a domino effect in the future. So I'm not very optimistic on the short run, mm -hmm. but on the long run, yes, I am. And then you can think of many political systems, right. decentralized, right. federal, centralized with consociational democracy, uh, a secular model, plus uh, some characteristics that you could, uh, I don't know, preserve. In Lebanon, we can have a parliament that is not sectarian and then have a Senate that might be elected based on sectarian uh, lines in order to give guarantees for some communities that might feel demography is against them uh, to allow them for a veto right in that Senate when it comes to crucial decisions. But the parliament as a body of legislation and of monitoring uh, should become freed from any secular uh, representation. And uh, you can do it gradually. Uh, we're not into, it's true, it's a revolutionary process, but people are aware that what they are doing is a cultural revolution However, politically, they want to reform and they want to avoid uh, more chaos or, or possible uh, confrontations. So let's hope things will continue in that wow. direction. There are just, just so many interesting dynamics at play. And I, <laughs> I'm going to have... It's so funny seeing Stuart's face, learning <laughs> all the Lebanese It's going to take right me now. a while to digest yeah, all yeah. of this. I'm going to have to listen to the yeah, episode I hope it's going to be times. clear for uh, those who who will listen without knowing the details of the Lebanese situation. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Well, thank you again, Ziad. Maybe we'll get a graduate class from you sometime. That would, <laughs> oh, man, that would be incredible. <laughs> and Sarah, we'll, we'll keep looking at your social media and, and stay updated. So thank, thank you, you both so much. Thank you for having me.